Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. Welcome back, guys. We're back with another episode of the Canadian Investor. Today, I'm really excited because one of our listeners, Lydia, left a question on GetStockMarket.com for Simon and I to dissect. Hey, Simon, how's it going? Hey, I'm good, uh, Braden. Yeah, we're really excited to answer that question. Uh, so, um, yeah, we'll start off with that today. Okay, perfect. I'll go ahead and, and read it. And uh, also, uh, happy 2020, everyone. Hope everyone had a good New Year's, good holidays. So here's the question. She says that she's really enjoying the show. Uh, thank you very much, Lydia. She says, I'm waiting for a pullback in the market and I'm struggling with what approach would be the best. I'm 33, looking for long-term long growth with a significant amount of money. I've pulled everything out of mutual funds and opened an account with Questrade. I really like the idea of being diversified with ETFs. However, I worry that there could be a bubble growing with passive investing. My other strategy is buying blue chippers, hopefully at a discount and holding them forever. I know that there's no right or wrong answer to this, but maybe one of these strategies could be better to my specific situation. Thanks in advance and keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much, Lydia. This is a very good question. It's a kind of a couple questions in one, and uh, I'm going to let Simon give his first take on this one. Okay, yeah, thanks, Lydia, for the uh, the question. Uh, the first thing that uh, like comes out to me, well, first of all, congratulations on getting uh, rid of those uh, mutual funds and those high fees. I think it'll make a really big difference for you in the long run. In terms of the uh, market being overvalued and then wanting to invest uh, in index funds versus specific uh, blue chip companies, um, yeah, it's a good question whether people think that uh, markets are overvalued or not. And I think a good approach, whichever you want to pick, is to dollar cost average. So whatever sum you're investing, you could maybe divide it into 10 installments that you're doing every month or so uh, at a regular interval. So that way, if the market is overvalued, goes down or vice versa, it goes up, uh, you kind of edge your, your bets a little bit by doing that. Uh, in terms of selecting ETFs versus uh, selecting individual stocks. That's really, to me, whether you're willing to put the time in investing in blue chip or investing in stocks and keeping an eye on those companies um, at least once a year, I would say, uh, when they do their annual reports to just see if they're still on track, if your premise is still, still good, and so on. And really, nothing's preventing you to invest a portion of it in index funds and then a portion of it in five to ten stocks for example um, i personally have about 50 percent of my investment in index funds versus about 30 percent in individual companies and i do keep about a 15 20 percent of cash balance right now uh, my reasoning behind that is if there are some really good opportunities um, i'd like to have some ammunition in terms of cash to be able to pounce on them uh, so at first glance that would be uh, my advice for you there's a lot of things you'll have to ask yourself and because you're in your mid 30s uh, you probably have at least 20 25 years to invest if not more um, I'll let Braden give his two cents as well I probably have some more uh, to add on that a bit later too yeah that's that's pretty well put so I'm gonna take an approach here of dissecting your question in a 
couple different parts because there's there's a couple different moving pieces here. So first off, you said that you're waiting for a pullback in the market. Um, so I, I am a strong believer that there's no such thing as timing the market. Warren Buffett is famously quoted saying, time in the market is better than timing the market. And really, that, that means that means a lot because what you should really be doing here is dollar cost averaging, as Simon mentioned, which is not putting all of your capital in at one trading day, maybe over the next year, the next even next two years, if you can be patient enough to avoid that kind of the pricing of the market right now, or even next month when you do when you add more. Um, this is this is the best strategy, and it's probably going to boost your returns unless you get really lucky. So that's that's the idea there. So congratulations on pulling out of mutual funds and opening up with Questray. That's that's a good idea. Um, and with your with your question around a, a potential bubble and in passive investments, uh, there's been lots of buzz around the internet on this topic. If you know if everyone's dumping in money into Vanguard ETFs, then is there a bubble forming in in the market? And to, I, although I believe that does have some merit, and there's been some studies that they could be possible, the amount of capital that's actually going into ETFs versus regularly individual traded companies and big big institutional funds is fractional compared to what's into ETFs. So I really don't think that's going to be moving the market in any really, really significant way. Um, so that's my short answer to that. As for investing in individual stocks versus ETFs, I think Simon hit the nail on the head there with you can do both. Um, I do both because I think being able to get international exposure to markets all around the world with broad-based ETFs, index funds, is really, really advantageous because there's no way you're going to be able to do a ton of research on the Chinese market, the Brazilian market, the Japanese market, the European market. You're just one person and now you're managing your own portfolio. So you have to be realistic with that. The, advent the, the advantage of pulling out those mutual funds is that you are now not paying high fees. However, you are now managing your own account. So you have to be realistic with how you're going to be able to get that kind of global exposure or international exposure but while researching all those companies on your own, which is just, just not realistic. So what you can do is pick up those blue chip companies that you think may be at a discount and doing your own research and then combining it with an ETF indexing strategy. I think that's that's the best way to do it, to get good diversification, good exposure to different sectors, and then also be able to pick up these dividend companies that you're talking about that you're very comfortable with. And I think that's the most important part because if a market pullback does happen and those 10 stocks that you did select, if you're not fully comfortable owning them, then you're going to panic and that's not going to make for a good investing strategy. So knowing what you own, famously quoted by Peter Lynch, is incredibly important here while you make this, this big step. But uh, congratulations as well. Um, it's, that's awesome. Do you have anything to add yes. to that? 
Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of things. So I definitely um, agree with pretty much everything Braden said. Um, in terms of the uh, passive investing that she was referring to, a lot of people also forget, yes, there's a lot of money going in, but there's also a f- generation that's very uh, getting older. Uh, my parents are part of it, the baby boomers. So they have to take money out of those investments as well. So there's a balance still kind of going on. Um, but I do know like there's a lot of chatter of it uh, on the internet. In terms of uh, like some investment ideas, I know Braden had mentioned some broad-based index funds in one of our previous episodes. Um, some of the sectors that I do, I am looking on whether you want to look at those sectors and pick some individual companies and do your research or just uh, index funds that follow them. So I know small caps have not performed as well overall as um, the broad-based markets so whether you're looking at medium large caps they haven't performed all that well uh, some examples of um, ETFs that are pretty low fees there's the iShares small cap index ETF SCX.TO there's the Vanguard small cap ETF this one is a US one uh, the ticker is VB and then there's the iShares Russell 2000 growth ETF IWO uh, that's US traded as well um, there's also the REIT sector that has perform well in the uh, past year, uh, but not as well recently as the broad market. So in terms of REITs, the ones that I have a good eye on is uh, retail REITs and data storage REITs. Retail REITs, I would say, do your due diligence. Like You do have to do a lot of research in those because they uh, mostly are U.S. There are some in Canada. Um, a lot of them are not doing well, but there are some solid ones in there. And the, the sector as a whole is very... Um, the the feeling is a bit uh, pessimistic towards them and I think they're throwing uh, some good companies out with a bathwater whatever the uh, <laughs> whatever the expression is and data storage REITs I love they're mostly in the US I think there's some Canadian companies that have exposure to them so data storage are just companies that uh, will have data centers and they'll lease that uh, that to uh, like for example Amazon Web Services Microsoft uh, their cloud uh, Google and so on uh, so there's a big tailwind for them uh, going forward and a lot of them are reasonably uh, priced right now yeah, that's a really good point. Well, you bring up a good point with the retail reads as well. Definitely a pessimistic attitude towards them. Some of them are, however, quite quality. You have to do a lot of research on the quality of the tenants that they actually house in their spaces. So with retail REITs, you're actually doing like, uh, you have to do a lot of work because now you're looking at, now you're researching, you know, all the potentially publicly traded companies that are inside of the the malls that they own. So, yeah, that's it's a lot of work. Anyways, um, today we wanted to talk about the balance sheet in particular and the types of things that you basically need to, for me anyways, need to check off as like a bit of a checklist. Like, oh, it needs to meet these kinds of criteria in terms of safety on the balance sheet. Before, before I will, you know, actually enter a position, uh, I can I can lead right into some of the things that we're looking at, and there's a million different ratios you can kind of take from the balance sheet, and you know, put this over that, and add this, and then divide it by that. There's a million ways, but um, I'm gonna kick off with one that I think is very very important. And uh, right when I started investing, a good friend of mine, Andrew Sather, who runs the investing for beginners podcast he always talked about the debt to equity and he actually wrote a book 
about all the bankruptcies in the in the U.S. The thirty last bankruptcies, and how they all wrote a similar tune about debt to equity. So, this is total debt to equity, by the way. This is total liabilities divided by total equity. So basically. What do you owe versus what is the all, everything you owe versus everything you own? Um, very very simple. You can relate this to back to your own life, um, and really is an understanding of the total health of what you owe versus what you own. And um, there has been lots of correlation between this total debt to equity um, starting to balloon with certain companies and it ending very badly for them. Okay, yeah, so for me in terms of uh, whenever I, I think about ratios, whether we're looking at the uh, balance sheet, the income statement, the cash flow statement, um, the main thing I kind of think about when I look at a specific ratio is how does it compare to the company itself in the past and also how does it compare currently to its peers. So if you don't put it in context, uh, it won't make sense. You can't start comparing a company like uh, just Enbridge, for example, that has a lot of debt, but they also have a lot of stable cash flows to a company like Facebook, for example, who will have a lot less debt and a lot of cash flow as well, but they have totally two different type of businesses. So one of the things that's really important whenever you look at ratios um, to think about the context of it. Um, for me, I do like to look at um, total assets to uh, total debt, um, not quite debt to equity, but when I do my total asset, I will usually subtract uh, any type of goodwill just to give me a good idea of what the actual assets are. Um, goodwill usually will be the premium that a company will pay to acquire another company. Also, the premium they're oftentimes related to brand and the power of those brands. So um, if you guys want to do a bit of research, you can actually look online and see what happens with the Kraft Heinz, a company that Warren Buffett actually invested in. What happens when a company has a lot of goodwill and they realize that their brands are not worth as much as they are, they actually have to write off that goodwill and it's a one-time charge in their earnings. Yeah, that's you brought up a lot of good points there, especially with the real life example of Kraft Heinz. Um, but I want to touch on that point again about uh, comparing it to the business itself historically. What 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 is their capital structure trending like? Um, I think that's really important. And then also comparing it business to business. This is quite sector specific, um, and I am one of the investors that kind of distances myself from that methodology of saying oh well you have to you have to compare uh, growth to in, in different companies i say well, well in different industries sorry and i say well why would i do that i want i want the companies that are the best regardless of their industry um however the balance sheet is is kind of different because there are different types of cash flow predictabilities you brought the point of enbridge or lots of uh, regulated Energy companies like that have very predictable cash flows, so they can take on more debt versus someone who has some uncertainty and revenue and cash flow in general. So the next ratio that is very important is looking at the current ratio, which is just current assets divided by current liabilities. So this is short-term safety of their financial health, of their capital structure. So 
let's break this down. It's current assets divided by current liabilities. So what are current assets? It's things on their balance sheet like cash, accounts receivable, so things that people are paying them, inventory, and other assets that are that expected to be liquidated into cash in less than one year. So that's important. So basically anything that can be considered basically cash within one year. Um, current liabilities include accounts payable, so what they owe in, in this year, wages, what they're paying their employees, taxes, and a current portion of their long-term debt. So that makes a lot of sense on what is their capital structure and their financial health look like within you know the next year. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. That's a good uh, ratio. Um, one other thing, so I'll probably look at uh, different lines of it uh, just to make a bit more sense. So one of the things I do look at uh, when I look at companies that will tend to have uh, inventories, so uh, retail companies, for example, if you're looking to invest in, uh, one of the things that's really important to me is inventories level. So if I see that those inventories level are actually going up in terms of percentage of total assets and especially total current assets, that's usually a bit of a warning sign especially have if you have an interest industry that's very fashion driven or uh, you know things will go out of style quickly um, if those inventories level go up what's going to happen is that they'll actually have to do sales and reduce their margins to get rid of the products so that's something that i will look at for not all companies but if uh, there's companies that do have to have a good portion of inventory on hand that's something uh, i will look at um yeah, that's a really good point, and yeah. and that's what I find funny about, or certain funny, but fun or enjoyable in this process of of selecting individual companies, is when you're looking at the balance sheet, you're asking yourself a lot of, well, why is this like this? Why is this like that? And then making comparisons to the actual business itself, what they do, what they sell, how they create value, and you'll make a lot, of, you'll draw a lot of those comparisons when you're looking at the balance sheet. And if you can't answer those questions very clearly, then you're, I don't think you've arrived at your, you know, your thesis yet. So that's just something I want to bring up that I, I think this is a, a fun exercise. Yeah, exactly. Um, did you have anything, uh, any other ratios you use a lot, uh, Brayden? Those are kind of the ones you talked about, the ones I use the most frequently. There are some that I use that go a bit more with earnings when you combine them with the uh, balance sheet, and we can do that probably another time uh, when we look at earnings as well. Yeah, those are the ones I, I guarantee that I look at. Another one that's quite common is the quick ratio, um, and which is which is basically very, it's very similar to the current ratio. And the fact that it's um, cash and cash equivalents and accounts receivable, so very similar to current assets. But it also includes marketable securities, which are things that can be you know, securities that can be traded in for cash very quickly. So companies that are holding short-term bonds and even, even different stocks, this would be included on the marketable securities. So if you're looking at a um, and then, sorry, that's divided by current liabilities. So this is one of those ones where it could be helpful to look at as well. You might be missing something with that marketable securities piece. But uh, yeah, just another tool in, in terms of ratios that you might want to look at. Yeah, the last thing I just talked about, uh, just uh, 
not uh, just kind of realize is I think sometimes you'll find in the balance sheet the numbers uh, number of share outstanding um, so that's something I do look at as well so I don't want to see too much dilution unless there's a good reason for it IPO is dilution in itself uh, secondary public offering usually it's after the IPO when they offer more shares so whenever a company offers more share means that you own a smaller portion of the company um, there could be good reasons if they have a good plan for growth and they're investing that and they're creating value then that's fine but especially new tech companies that are losing a lot of money um, you'll see that share count uh, it's not unusual to see it like uh, double within a few years uh, same thing with a lot of the marijuana companies you'll see those share counts uh, actually go way way up yeah exactly and you can you can look on the cash flow statement right at the bottom there and you see net issuance of common stock see what's happening there if the company's buying back a ton of stock i think last episode we talked about apple's absurd amounts of buying back stock i think in 2017 they spent like 80 billion on buying back stock or something outrageous or yeah that, in in that wheelhouse of numbers so you can you can see on the, the cash flow statement there you can also see it on the balance sheet all of these things are connected and it's it's kind of like a lot of aha moments when you see them kind of all working together yeah, and just one quick comment on that. I'd be really careful if a uh, company is buying back a lot of stock, but also issuing a lot of stock. So what that tends to mean is there'll be stock options. So they're issuing stock for insiders at a low price and then buying back stock on the market at a higher price, which is not good for shareholders. So no. that's something that, yeah, people should definitely, if they see that in a cash flow statement, uh, you should definitely see some of the footnotes uh, in the annual and the reports because oftentimes they'll be talking about it. It, there won't be super upfront about it. You'll find the information, uh, but that is something else I'll look at. Very good points. So Simon's Simon's your man when it comes to the uh, the balance sheet. This guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> that is a quick little thing that I actually never really thought about. It's something that I knew is not good for shareholders, but that's an easy way to find it. So let's talk about a company. <laughs> We're joking about this. My favorite company. No, I, I make fun of this this company all the time. Uh, it's GameStop, and we're going to specifically talk about their balance sheet. Um, I think we've talked about the thesis on this one very briefly on a previous episode. Basically, uh, they're not they're not in a good spot in terms of their performance of the um, of the stock has gone down a lot. Their revenue's been flat, um, and there's some funny things happening on their balance sheet, which brings us back to how we talked about. Companies that have predictable cash flow and are growing can afford to make, you know, to take on more debt to grow their business. However, this company is not growing and it actually is shrinking. Um, so you can see how that kind of uh, starts to fit together. So do you want to take your your first take on GameStop's balance sheet here, Simon? Yeah, so looking at it, so the two things at first glance that I notice is the, I'll just look at the total assets. So total assets for them, um, I can see that they're, uh, yeah, it's uh, going down overall. And you'll see one of the big reasons that there has been a big drop in assets. It was uh, 2018 to 2019. It's because they wrote off uh, some goodwill, it seems like. I don't have their... Uh, income statement right in front of me but i would assume that's what happened so their goodwill which i was talking about earlier went from 1.6 uh, billion i think to 
363 million. So there's been a big write-off there. But what that does, it tells me that their total assets is actually trending down. That's not great. And their total liabilities is actually going up. So those are two trends that I don't like seeing. Um, and then if you combine that with the fact that their uh, sales and profits are going down, uh, those are two things that I'm very concerned about. And I know having read and uh, listened a bit on some analysis about GameStop is their footprint in terms of store is just crazy they have thousands of store if i remember correctly mm-hmm. um and they're not getting good uh uh like re- re- not reoccurring revenue but uh increase in same store sales so they will have to be closing some stores as well uh, going forward but those are just at first glance for me for gamestop yeah yeah so what's happening with gamestop is this is amazon effect to the extreme um basically brick and mortar selling, selling video games selling video game consoles um, and then all of a sudden, the actual platforms themselves, the, the PS4s and the, the Xboxes of the world, just allowed users to download the game right on the console um, and not even need to leave the couch when you want to pick up that new game. So you can see how that extreme convenience, uh, instant gratification, not even like the Amazon effect of like, okay, I'll, I'll buy it now and get it in a day or two. Um, this is all downloaded right now and I'll be able to start playing it in when it's finished downloading in, you know, the next 30 minutes. So that's what's happened with, with GameStop. It's, it's not in a good spot in terms of brick and mortar. There's lots of brick and mortar retail that's doing very well. Uh, Lululemon, for example. However, this is, this is the exact opposite of that. Um, so I think you, you touched on the important parts. Their liabilities are creeping up, um, and let's see here, their t- current assets is uh, 119, no, no, sorry, yes, three, okay, so their current ratio is still over one, which is which is good. Um, when you're looking at that, you're thinking, okay, in the short term, they're not going bankrupt in the very short term, but over the long term, with their decreasing amount of top line and bottom line on their income statement, and the increase of long-term debt, you question yourself what the final future is of this. And a lot of investors are questioning what the future of it is. And that's why the stock price has gone down so much. Um, if, if you want to take the floor for a second, I'll, I'll tell you how GameStop has performed. Yeah, so um, yeah, definitely agree with uh, with Braden on that. So there's still, there, there's not go, they're probably not going to go bankrupt uh, like in the next year or so. Um, but it's not trending well. And one of the other things, if I switch to the cash flow statement, I know we said we would only talk about the uh, balance sheet, <laughs> but they have things that have affected their balance sheets there. So they've have issued in the past five years, they have issued more debt than they've actually repaid. So you can see that in the uh, cash flow statement, the cash flow from financing operation. Operations. Um, and they've also made some stock repurchases for decent amounts, especially they've reduced them now, which I guess is good. Um, but they were repurchasing shares at a high price in 2015, 2016, 2017, a lot less in 2018. But you kind of makes you wonder if uh, management was allocating capital right when they probably should have been modernizing either their store or closing some footprint and you know seeing what's coming ahead um which to me is one of the big issues with this company mm-hmm. so five years to date 
uh, dating back to January 2015, the stock has fallen 82% and a 87% from their high at the end of 2015. So yeah, it just tells you kind of what happens when a declining business and a uh, worsening balance sheet get this kind of compounding effect where the company can kind of spiral out of control. Um, so we joked around this earlier. Do you think that GameStop is sitting in deep value territory or would you stay far, far away? Uh, to me, it's uh, it's a falling knife for sure. You're trying to catch a falling knife. It's a value trap, uh, if you ask me, um, just because of their footprint. Uh, it's so high. I'm not sure if they have a clear plan of what's gonna go, like what's gonna be happening in the next five years. They've made terrible decision. You said they've gone down eighty something percent in the past five years. Well, five years ago they were repurchasing stock to the tune of three hundred and thirty million that year. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gives you an idea of like not smart capital allocation. So yeah. uh, for some people, might, they might That's think it's a good... That's their market cap right now. <laughs> exactly. So for some people, they might think it's a, it's a value play. I mean, I could be proving wrong, but I'd rather uh, to take a less risky approach and take a business that's actually trending in the right direction. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, man. I, I know that uh, there's a lot of deep value investors that really say that it's, it's the best way to... You know, to to manage capital, why would you not buy businesses trading extreme deep discounts? However, you're entering into a world of generally potential value traps and companies that are just not even increasing that top line. So that's like a check for me. Like, Is the company growing its top line? You want to invest long-term in businesses that are at least generating more in sales than they were the previous years at the bare minimum. And that just does not uh, get checked off here for GameStop for me. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we've uh, talked about this we've one. We've covered enough. it, yeah. <laughs> uh, and one company that's in stark contrast of them would be Microsoft. Another one that people can think about is Apple if they want to see really what a good balance sheet looks like. So if you look at Microsoft, the current ratio, it's more than two to one. Um, so that's really good. Um, if you look at uh, some of the other metrics, yes, they have a lot of depth. But in proportion, it's not a lot. I mean, their long-term debt, I think, is less than two times their um, their actually free cash flow for a given year. So I think that could be repaid fairly quickly. Um, and if you look at them, I know they're big numbers, but they do um, they just produce a whole lot of money. So for them, when you put it in perspective, I think Microsoft is just an awesome company um, without going into their income statement or cash flow statement. Um, I do know they're increasing sales every year and uh, earnings as well. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Uh, another one I'd like to bring up is a company that uh, I've talked a lot about to my subscribers to Stratosphere Investing. It's a software acquirer out of Markham called Eng House, um, and they acquire software companies in the SaaS business, so subscription revenue. And their balance sheet is clean as a whistle. Their current assets are 265 compared to 265 million compared to um, 118 million current liabilities. So they're very covered there over two and a half. Their total assets are 500 million compared to 145 million in total liabilities. So yeah, almost like four times the assets over liabilities for a company that uses debt to a 
acquire businesses and grow, um, they're poised to be able to make some really strong acquisitions over the next couple of years. And uh, they just announced they bought a $55 million uh, software company on Monday. So yeah, they're going to be they're going to be growing a lot. So these are the kinds of companies that I really like. Yeah, so those are just kind of two contrasts. Obviously, we just did an overview of their uh, balance sheets. Um, so on uh, for a closing note, uh, we were discussing about just providing a quick uh, tip, uh, investing tip as we close out. So just call it uh, maybe our tip of the day, uh, day D apostrophe E-H, right? <laughs> Keeping it Canadian. That's right. And uh, that shout out to my girlfriend. She's the one that uh, gave me my, <laughs> that suggestion. You're just scoring uh, points on the podcast right now. You're smart. Yeah, man. yeah. Yeah, I don't think she'll be listening. So it's okay. <laughs> true. Um, but aside from that, so we were talking, a quick tip for everyone is uh, when you invest money, whether you're investing in an ETF or a specific company, try to keep your cost uh, at less than 2% of your investment uh, for the transaction. Um, the reason for that, it will impact if you uh, purchase, say, a company for you buy $200 worth of share and you pay a $10 cost, well, that's a 5% of your actual uh, investment right there. So as a quick tip, I know not everyone has the same amounts of money, uh, but try to add in some money so you can just invest without costing more than 2% for the uh, purchasing fee. Uh, one other option is if you're doing index uh, ETFs, a lot of uh, trading platform, including Quest Trade, but I know there's other ones that uh, do free ETF purchasing. So that's really great if you want to get into the market and you have like, say, just $100 a month, for example, at least you're not paying any fees on that. Yeah, that's a good point. The free ETF buys is really handy. If I'm buying individual stock that I'm paying a $5 commission, I typically don't invest. I typically don't enter a position with less than $500 uh, because of that exact thing, right? If we're we're trying to get away from management fees, yet in your example, paying 10% right to the commission right off the bat, uh, that is not a improvement in your uh, fee structure. So that's, that's a really good tip of the de apostrophe A. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Tip of the day. So I think that'll be it for us today. Uh, Thanks a lot for uh, the listener question. If you guys have more questions, uh, go to GetStockMarket.com. The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simone may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Canadian Investor. To get a list of the top Canadian dividend stocks right now and other valuable investing resources, go to GetStockMarket.com.